Jay, I know we technically covered it last week, but I'm still trying to get the whole Soul Sword mess straight. Ilyana Rasputin made it. Or acquired it, depending on which retcon you go with. And then when she died, it bonded to Kitty Pride, Who gave it to Amanda Sefton, who gave it to Margali Sardos, used it to do some murdering until Amanda took it back. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Giving a nigh-omnipotent magical weapon to a sorcerer, as generally amoral as Margali, seemed like really, really poor judgment, even for a comic book character. Oh, Amanda was much more careful about where she left it the second time. Well, I would hope so. Where did she keep it? In Limbo? In Nightcrawler. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 277 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a globe-trotting episode. We're recording from New York and Oregon, and we're going to the Savage Land and Egypt. Not not literally so much, although it feels a little bit like it should be somewhere that's summer all year in, in my apartment right now because the heat has automatically turned on because it's ridiculously bad out, and so it's, it's, it's sort of feast or famine, in, but in terms of warmth at the moment. Yeah, I've done a couple of freezing weather morning runs already this year, and uh, gotta say, not a fan, not a fan at all. No, no, that is definitely why indoor running spaces exist. Huh, I should probably find one of those. But outside is so convenient. It's right outside. True. I I really can't argue with that. Now, speaking of the outdoors, or at least one of our, our exotic destinations, we are headed to the Savage Land in X-Men Unlimited number six. X-Men Unlimited, as you may recall, is basically the X-Men's short story title. The stories that happen in it are part of continuity, but they're usually removed a little bit from it. You generally aren't going to need to read them to follow what's currently going on in comics, although there have been some notable exceptions. Yeah, I mean, the first few, uh, we had the revelation of Nightcrawler's parentage. We had the whole thing with Sabretooth being taken prisoner by the X-Men. We had some really good character studies. And I gotta say, with X-Men Unlimited, a lot of the quality is kind of front-loaded. I'm not saying that it just steadily declines, but a lot of the issues that we're covering, well, one of them certainly, this episode, and that we may cover in the future, there are no X-Men Unlimited number one, or two, or three, or four, or five. Or seven. Seven is also very good. Yeah. Oh, X-Men Unlimited number six, we are looking at you with Dino Judgment. Now, this issue is titled Primal Scream. It's written by John Francis Moore, storyboarded, which is a term that I don't think we've seen pop up in these comics before, by Paul Smith, penciled by Mandel Alves Flor, Fabio Laguna, Al Rio, and Eddie Wagner, inked by Ralph Cabrera, Keith Champagne, John Lowe, Mark McKenna, Al Milgram, Joe Rubenstein, and Tim Townsend, and colored by Joe Agostinelli, Ariane, Mel Sanchez, Andrew Triana, and Matt Webb. Oh, and while we're at it, also lettered by Steve Dutro, Richard Starkings, and Bill Oakley. For those keeping track at home, that is four pencilers, seven inkers, five colorists, and three letterers. And as you may recall from previous episodes or your general knowledge of comics, listeners, the more creators you have on a book, the better it is. I mean, no, no, it's often the opposite of that. Yeah, that's 100% a lie. 
we are moving into the sort of odd era of seeing more and more creators I've worked with start to pop up in these, which is sort of strange because I realized that this is, this is, we're, we're going to lap not only our own reading, but our own like careers at some point. Oh man. Yeah, that is going to be strange. So we have a lot of creators, this issue and you see a number of problems there. Now, one of the problems I think is that when you have this many creators, it's almost always the sign of a very rushed issue. And the more you rush a thing, the lower the quality is going to be. But when we have this many artists, you also start noticing a lot of artistic inconsistency. So for instance, Sauron, the villain of this issue, his beak goes from green to orange a few pages in and then just stays that way. He looks like a Tyranno duck. He looks like he'd fit right into DuckTales or something, which that would be a crossover I would love. And his jorts get less and less jorty as the issue progresses. I guess you could assume that, like, as he's in battle, they're getting more ripped up, but I object. Well, historically, his jorts have gone back and forth between jorts and kind of jort loincloth. So that I'm willing to accept. Okay, that's that's reasonable, I suppose. But still, mo jorts, mo beta. Now, we've we've talked about works by John Francis Moore a couple times. He wrote the Phoenix miniseries that we talked about, the one with, with Rachel in the future, and I believe um, X-Men Unlimited number five, which um, involved the Shi'ar and the Kree and Professor X and Lalandra finally breaking up. Yeah, and we quite liked both of those stories. This one, not his strongest showing, but I suspect there was a lot going on behind the scenes involving needing that many artists that was more involved than anything that would be directly his fault. Or maybe not. Who knows? The point that we're making here is that this story is bad and it should feel bad. I actually, no, it's not even so much bad as it is kind of pointless. It should be a filler issue from like 1978. I'm thinking back to one of our very first episodes. In fact, it may have been our first episode where we answered a question um, where someone asked if we would describe Sauron's origin. And we said, no, we're not going to focus on minor things like that that we don't feel are important to continuity. And I feel like this issue may be Marvel's revenge back in time for us daring to say that. I feel like Sauron is in general revenge for people caring about things like continuity and gravitas. Oh, I don't know. I have been rereading some Silver Age stuff, and I just reread his first story, and it is delightful. It's uh, part of the Roy Thomas Neil Adams run, which I am a gigantic fan of. Like for me, that's the oh, yeah. shining. Yeah, it's the shining. Uh, not golden, I guess silver spot in the Silver Age, and there's like too much gravitas, which is exactly the right amount of gravitas. There are so many good villain speeches. I mean, this is a villain who turns into a dinosaur man and decides to name himself after the bad guy from Lord of the Rings because of how evil he is. Does he? I'm not sure if he actually makes that decision or if he just thinks that it sounds cool. No, he specifically mentions it. He specifically mentions Tolkien. It's almost Claremonty in its direct reference to pop culture, albeit older pop culture. Oh, shit. I had pretty much missed that. That's amazing. Carl Lycos is a huge nerd, and I, I love this. This is this is fantastic. So anyway, while we're talking about this, let's let's sort of go go back and, and recap the, the relevant details of Sauron at this point. He's popped up in the not terribly distant past, but um he he as 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 you mentioned, his his roots go back much, much further to the Silver Age. And as 
You may recall listeners, Sauron is a were-pterosaur with hypno-eyes, big beefy arms, and tiny ragged jorts, or sometimes a denim loincloth. And Sauron specifically is what happens when you want a vampire, but you're limited by the comics code authority. Within continuity, he's what happens when you take your kid to the Savage Land and he gets bitten by a pterodactyl and then grows up to become respected physician and fairly low-key energy vampire Carl Lycos. Now, Way, way, way back in the Silver Age, Lycos got his first taste of mutant life energy from a then-incapacitated Havoc, which caused him to turn into a fucking pterosaur. Why? I don't know. Why not? This is, this is how we live now, kids. Oh, no, it makes perfect sense. He was injured by pterosaurs in the Savage Land, and so he got, like, pterosaur blood in his blood or, or something. And so when something science happened, therefore he became a pterosaur. It's very axe cop logic, and I am in full support. In general, the Silver Age is pretty axe cop logic. See, for instance, the wizard who got his powers from mongoose blood. Only one of two people named the Wizard, both of whom I believe wore yellow costumes, or maybe it was just one. One's enough. I believe he was the only one of them who was briefly theorized to be Wanda and Pietro Maximoff's father. But I might be mistaken about that, too, because at this point, pretty much everyone in the Marvel Universe has been their dad at some point. Have you ever noticed that when we don't like a story very much, we go off on more and weirder tangents? I don't think it's so much when we don't like a story as it is when a story has a lot of footholds for that sort of thing. And Sauron, Sauron is, is a foothold for a lot of tangents. Sauron is, is not only where Gravitas goes to die, he's where the X-Men specifically discuss Gravitas going to die. There's a point in the Whedon run, I think it's the Whedon run, yeah, when, um, armor, describes him to Emma Frost, and Emma just sort of mugs and says, I wonder when I stopped questioning statements like that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, and in that moment, we were all Emma Frost. So anyway, back to Sauron. After getting his shit together to some extent, Lycos, who never really wanted to be a villain and would in fact help the X-Men pretty regularly when he was in his right mind, uh, stopped being a pterosaur and married his childhood sweetheart, Tanya, until Toad forced him to kill her in order to become Sauron again and join the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So that's a thing, and that sort of brings us up to the present, where he is, is now living in the Savage Land, controlling the mutates, who, as you may recall, were a bunch of mutant humans that um, Magneto created to be his slaves during one of his stints ruling the Savage Land. Um, but Sauron is not satisfied. He longs for the sweet, sweet taste of Summer's energy, which is apparently a high like no other, and so he kidnaps Havoc. And that's where the issue opens. Havoc has already been kidnapped. And so Polaris, who is done with governmental red tape, although honestly she hasn't had to worry about very much of it since Forge took over, but whatever, she recruits Scott and Jean, and the three of them go on a rescue mission. Maybe they just don't show us the amount of paperwork that she's been stuck doing. That could very well be. It's just off-panel, just like all the subtexty stuff. The other advantage to bringing Jean along is that you can do things like mind control the friendly local cops into thinking that you're special government agents and not, you know, mutant outlaws, and have so have them, you know, be helpful and, and tell you where the weird alien spaceship that the mutates happen to find and restore to go kidnap Havoc in. This doesn't really tie into anything. It just happens to be the case. Uh, yeah, crashed down. 
I actually really appreciate that about this story in particular and the Savage Land in general. I enjoy that the Savage Land is just full of all of your lost world, ancient alien civilization, whatever detritus that doesn't fit anywhere else in the Marvel Universe. Like, it feels like it all just sort of washes up in the Savage Land. We learned that, you know, there was this continent Pangea. I'm not sure if that's related to the historical Pangea or if they just like the name. That had its own own alien race that was in the Savage Land and they left their stuff behind. And it's not really explained very much. And I like that it's not really explained very much. Just that the Savage Land is this kitchen sink catch-all for whatever kind of pulp tropes you want to play with. Yeah, I kind of think of the Savage Land as the sword and sorcery continent. Pretty much, yeah. I also like the extent to which they just all casually reference the weird, weird shit that has gone down in X-Books in the Savage Land before, like the Magneto and the Mutates thing, like the whole Polaris and Zaladane plot, which I think just gets one offhand line and then uh, swept away entirely, probably for the best. Now, Sauron at this point is, is, as I mentioned, living in a fortress in the Savage Land, controlling the Mutates and draining the locals. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the Mutates? I know I mentioned Magneto created or at least mutated them, but I feel like we should go into this a little bit more because they they occupy sort of a weird liminal taxonomic status. So I kind of love the mutates, and part of why I love the mutates is because they remind us of back when the Silver Age made no goddamn sense. Magneto had this habit on a couple of occasions, actually both Silver and Bronze Age, of trying to create mutants. Like, he wanted to create mutant slave armies. Doesn't quite line up with his his later characterization. But when he ended up in the Savage Land, after almost getting killed by the X-Men and just deciding to burrow down into the Earth's core and to see where he ended up, he found that there was a lot of radiation and a lot of old machinery, and so he just turned a bunch of caveman types into mutants. But mutates, because that's the technical term for when you're not born as one. And we have got to do a robot roll call with these people, because they are bananas. All right, we've got Brainchild, a large-headed and intelligent fellow roughly the size of its standard human child. Except for his head, which is much larger. In his first appearance, Roy Thomas mentions that he's got the emotions of a toddler, and I don't think that ever comes up. The emotions of of a toddler are like the emotional equilibrium of a toddler. I don't know. It's unclear. It's Silver Age language. We also have Worm, who's like if Toad and Mask had a baby. He covers folks with goo and then mind controls them, and he's sort of like a worm centaur in that his lower half is sort of a worm butt. And maybe two-thirds of this issue's artists remember that that's the case, and the other third just draw him with, like, really impressive buttocks. Huh. Uh, That brings us to Whiteout, who is a... Who, who has a costume that Miles described as sexy Grim Reaper. I'm going to go ahead and add sexy jumpsuit Grim Reaper because the Grim Reaper doesn't usually wear pants. Um, you also specify that Whiteout is a sexy white Grim Reaper, and I am assuming you're talking about her costume because you know the Grim Reaper is a skeleton, right? Right, right. It's totally her costume. I have no idea what her ethnicity under all of that white fabric might be. Nor do I really care. I just like that she looks really scary and also sexy and also doesn't make much sense. Anyway, she can blind people, and uh, later on she's going to join a group called the Femazons. She is also the owner of a black lotus flower that can knock people out and possibly also hypnotize them, which she just kind of pulls out sometimes. I think it's just a thing that grows in the Savage Land, maybe? Well, that's a really valuable card. She should sell that. She could retire. She wouldn't have to be a mutate anymore. I, I'm glad that you said that, because I we were definitely both thinking it. Yeah. Uh, We have Barbarous, who's got four arms, but somehow is not named Forearm, which I just don't understand. Oh, there's already a forearm. 
Well, right, but they could share the name. I mean, they have the same power and the same identity that is entirely based around that power. Barbarus may have a more complicated identity, Miles. Don't reduce him to his number of arms. How would you like being reduced to your number of arms? No, oh, well, that would be uh, rather, rather limiting. It's true. If you label my number of arms, you negate me. Barbarus clearly has aspirations to leadership and and some theories thereon. So I, I think he's, he's just got more going on. We've also got Gaza, who is blind but can psychically see. Is that Gaza's entire deal? I think that's his entire deal. Like, he's not like Daredevil where he has super enhanced senses from what I understand. I think he's just a person with uh, an injury and a power that negates that injury. So he just ends up a person. Okay. Yeah. And then we have Lupo, who's a wolf guy who can summon wolves through a series of high-pitched cries, which I imagine sound ridiculous. I imagine he sounds like an upset wolf cub. And what actually happens is like all of the concerned mama wolves come running and are like, what the fuck, man? So anyway, those are the mutates. They're Sauron's henchmen here. And that's kind of the deal with the mutates is that they're always henchmen. Like they served Magneto. They served Zaladane. They served Sauron. That actually comes up as a plot point in this issue, which I really appreciate. That just they want somebody to follow. They kind of remind me of the Crazy Kang from Excalibur in that regard. Uh, they kind of remi- remind me of, of the, um, the henchpersons from Venture Brothers. Oh, yeah. 21 and 24. Yeah. Now... They are not the only folks who are hanging around Sauron. There is also a hallucination of Karl Lykos that has been plaguing him lately, too. Um, and that's probably kind of inevitable for someone in, in Sauron's generally cliched circumstances. But long story short, Sauron not only kidnaps Alex, but manages to catch his would-be rescuers. And so he ends up with both Scott and Alex plugged into a machine that's supposed to let him feed off them eternally without killing them until Jean and Lorna show up and rescue them. And then everyone just sort of fights on and off for the rest of the issue, the end. But the fight is kind of fun. As much as it drags on for a million years and multiple locations, Sauron even goes into like a giant final form kind of deal that depending on- Oh yeah, yeah, he gets extra big because he he fed on um, a lot of mutant energy at once. Or possibly theirs in particular. It's it's really silly. Mostly he just has a wider wingspan, which prevents him from chasing through some trees. And I'm pretty sure this was someone frantically trying to correct an art error with dialogue. Now, honey, make sure you eat your summers, brothers, so you can grow up big and strong. But, like, not quite that big and strong because, you know, you live in a jungle world. I do also appreciate some of the dialogue here. Like, Sauron is just really a dick. Like, at one point, he throws Jean at Scott. And says, Don't you know better than to let people get close to you, Scott Summers? Man, that's not even villainous. That's just mean. I know! He's a jerk! <laughs> anyway... Um, the, the other, aside from a slightly widened win- wingspan, the main byproduct of this, this machine is that Scott and Alex don't entirely have access to their powers very briefly, which really only comes up when Scott's visor knocks off and nothing happens except that his eyes are glowing red, so his powers are coming back on. It's, it's pretty anticlimactic. Yeah. And during this fight, though, so we know that Sauron is a hypno pterosaur so he hypnotizes everybody, and he makes Jean see Lorna as the Goblin Queen, and Lorna see Jean as Malice, so they beat each other up, which is actually really clever and is totally consistent with the way his powers have been portrayed in the past. He can hypnotize people to do his bidding, but he can also make them hallucinate however he wants. 
I think you've got them switched. I think Lorna was seeing Jean as the Goblin Queen and Jean was seeing Lorna as Malice because those were each the forms that they, you know, had as villains or villains who had their faces. Oh, man, I guess you could do that. I guess I figured it was the first way just because they would each be really mad at their nemesis sort of selves. It was pretty unclear, but honestly, it's cool either way. And once again, Scott is the only one not hypnotized in this. And I'm just sort of imagining him being like, we did this with Mastermind in the mansion like a decade and a half ago. Yeah. During during the everyone thinks everyone's Phoenix issue. <laughs> right. Anyway, Jean eventually manages to telepathically jump into Sauron's mind to try to fix things. There, she finds Carl Lycos chained to a cliff. Uh, Lycos ends up killing both Sauron and himself, leaving Sauron's body a regular never-nude pterosaur, whom the other pterosaurs shun because he smells like people. It's really sad. He just wants to hang out with the other pterosaurs. It's like an ugly duckling situation, but with way more Savage Land super science and Lord of the Rings names. Are we sure it's how he smells and not his, like, big weird arms and tiny shorts? I mean, let's be real. There are a lot of potential reasons, and pterosaurs are very judgmental. Right? Again, the most punchable of the dinosaur types. Now... What this issue also doesn't address is what will happen when the energy he's absorbed wears off, because when that happens, generally Sauron changes back into Lycos physically. And since what he's basically doing these days is swooping around, sadly, presumably this would trigger, you know, a fall to his death. It doesn't. Spoiler, he's going to come back and eventually he's going to try to change everyone on Staten Island into dinosaurs. But, you know, it's kind of sad. Well, he'll be back pretty soon. He specifically shows up in the first issue of Kazar of the Savage Land a few years from here, which I suspect we will not cover, but rest assured, gentle listeners, he manages to stop being a lonely pterosaur and to once again start being an evil pterosaur. He can be both. Again, don't be so reductive, Miles. Let Sauron sing his awkward song. The Awkward Song of Sauron. Well, that brings us to X-Men Unlimited number seven, Memories, an issue that I think we both liked much better. Although, honestly, after talking that much about number six, I kind of like it more than I did before. I think it's more that number six contains a lot of things that we like to talk about, and less that we actually like number six. Valid. Well, number seven is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Joe Rubenstein, and colored by Matt Webb. It's only got one person for each of those roles. Miles, it has a smaller total creative team than the list of inkers for number six. Yeah. It also has a fabulous cover by Steve Epting. This is actually one of my definitive Storm images when I think of Storm. She just looks so strong and regal and dramatic and powerful. It is phenomenal. I recommend at least Googling it. Yeah. I'm sure we'll throw it into the visual companion. I may be mistaken, but I think this is an image that tends to be used fairly frequently as a character portrait for Storm on things like character bio pages, um, guides, other books, stuff where she appears, anywhere where they need an iconic image of her. It's definitely one that's gotten a lot of play over the years. It's a good choice. So the writer, Howard Mackey, we've talked about him before. He did the Ghost Rider chapters of Brood Trouble in the Big Easy, and he did both the Gambit and the Rogue miniseries. Now... If you think that that means he will not be able to resist bringing in some of that Nolan's magic to a completely unrelated story, you are correct, and we will get to that. 
the subtitle of this issue should be Kandra Tries to Franchise. Yeah, fucking Kandra. I don't like the externals, but I kind of love Kandra. She's just so delightfully terrible. The issue opens as Storm, Jean, and Gambit have traveled to Cairo because Ahmed El-Jabbar, Storm's thief mentor from when she was a street thief back in Cairo when she was a kid, pre-goddess, he's dying. Jean presumably is here just for emotional support. I mean, she and Storm haven't hung out a whole lot socially on panel in a long time, even though they were both on the Gold Squad, but they are close friends. And... Gambit is at this point probably Storm's other closest pal in the X-Men. More than that, though, I'm guessing he just could not pass up a chance to to do some teething tourism. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, whatever your hobby is, you want to see how it's practiced in other areas and probably be very judgmental about it. Now, this isn't Ahmed's first appearance in the X-Men. I mean, it's, it's his first on-panel appearance, but we learned about him for the first time, I believe, in flashbacks... Back in Cassidy Keep, in the story with the leprechauns, in fact, when Storm was trapped under rubble and having having flashbacks about her time in Cairo. Yeah, there was a great big backstory info dump, and he was a tiny part of it. We should qualify here that he is not himself tiny nor a leprechaun. Um, at least not at this point. Maybe he was before and that changed. Who knows? But we do get a really nice bit of narrative summing up. Master Thief. Beloved Teacher. Savior to all the children of the street. As I was reading this issue, I find myself just uh, internally calling him Thief Dad. Yeah, he's kind of the opposite of the Vanisher. He kind of is, yeah. So he took Storm into his street urchins. Yes, that is officially specifically what they're called. After her parents died and taught her to steal. And I was thinking about this, the urchin part specifically, because... Street urchins is a phrase we've all heard. It's a weird thing to call your group of thieves, like you'd think you'd want something more specific. But mainly I just started thinking about why they were called street urchins. Like, that's a weird phrase, right? So I looked it up. And this is fantastic because, you know, one of the first places I assume that you were thinking when you thought about this was was sea urchins and the fact that this, that this had to be a false etymology. I assumed that. And it's not. Right, because the 13th century French word irishon means hedgehog. And in the 16th century, urchin, the corruption of that word, was used to describe anything hedgehog-like. And according to the online etymology dictionary, that included hunchbacks, goblins, and bad girls. This is great. Right? Uh, So from there, apparently it also described street kids because they were, I don't know, spiky? Underfoot? Hard to say. Small and excellent. Anyway, so those are the street urchins. They are, in fact, street hedgehogs, and now you know. As Gambit is warning Jean about all these hedgehog thieves, one shows up to steal Jean's wallet. This is a girl named Karima. No relation to Karima Shapandar the Omega Sentinel. Well, they... Don't even have the same last name. Actually, I, they might. We don't We don't know this Karima's last name. We don't. But this Karima has delightfully coordinated purple rags. I really appreciate the branding, even when living a life of thiefy poverty. That's extra commitment. Well, you know, this is because she's got a good thief dad who, who teaches her how to fashion. And as we have learned from Gambit, 
having having a signature look is an essential part of being a successful thief. You know, based on that, I kind of wonder if Ahmed El-Jabbar and Apocalypse would get along really well. Like, they're both good bosses that understand the importance of stylish uniforms for their employees. They might at least respect that aspect of one another's management practices. I, I don't know to what extent they would actually be pals. They, they've got some fairly major philosophical and practical differences. Still, still, it's those little things that even people from opposite ends of the political spectrum can sometimes connect through. So maybe it would work out. I'm ever an optimist. Anyway, the heroes catch Karima before she can fully get away with Jean's wallet, and her bullshit skills are masterful. Jay, would you like to uh, demonstrate? Dear lady, here you are. The saints have smiled upon us both today. I saw you drop your purse and in the confusion of the crowds could not find you. But now here you are. No reward is necessary, beautiful lady, though it has been days since last I was able to taste the savory taste of bread. But this is none of your concern. Had I been blessed with a mother, I can only hope she would have been as beautiful and kind as you, pretty lady, with the hair of flames. Goodbye. So good. I love everything about this kid. I love that even after that performance, Storm has to get her to return the money she's taken out of the wallet and then Gambit's wallet, which she's also stolen. Best kid ever. I mean, actually, she's kind of terrible, but in really endearing ways. Well, you remember how Storm met Xavier for the first time. It's kind of the same thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a long and and... And actually, isn't this how how Gambit ended up hooked up with the Thieves Guild? Uh, I think he stole from the thief dad of Nolans, uh, so not too far from it. This is also roughly Parker's origin story from Leverage. The point is, there is a long and time-honored tradition of, of Thieves meeting their mentors by failing to effectively pick their pockets. Oh, and then one of the Robins tried to steal the Batmobile's hubcaps, right? Yeah, that was Jason Todd. Oh, well, things got pretty rough for him. Anyway, Storm reveals herself to Karima as being the famous Aurora, formerly of the Street Urchins, and so they all head off to meet Thief Dad. But not all the thieves are there, because a thief kid, or urchin kid, or hedgehog kid, named Jamil, is parkouring all over the city. He's sort of dressed like an evil Aladdin, and that's echoed by his actions. He's been training in combat and violence and bad things because he thinks that Thief Dad is being naive, only teaching the urchins to steal in this violent world. Oh, don't do that, kid. That's how you get externals. It's true, because this kid has also been talking to a very large man with elaborate facial hair named Bond, who wants Jamil to join up with Kandra. I'm not really clear on why Kandra wants Jamil, since he just seems to be an angry young man halfway across the world, but she does. I'm telling you, she's setting up franchises. Eh, pretty much that. She does like sponsoring thieves' guilds. So, Jamil gets to Urchenheim just in time to meet up with our heroes as they arrive, and he threatens them all and tries to attack them, but Jean almost effortlessly telekinetically whomps him against a wall, which impresses Gambit, who is, as usual, being kind of judgy. To which Jean points out that, uh, she is one of the OG X-Men. Don't speak down to me, Gambit. I was an X-Man while you were still robbing houses for a living. They can't fire Jamil because he quits, so he runs off and indeed is found by Kandra, freshly arrived from New Orleans. Mackie loves Kandra so much, and he also appears to make sure his artists all draw her with that astonishing Shibari lobster outfit that we're later going to see her in in Rogue, and I love it. 
The way it's drawn here, though, the way Romita draws it, it really looks like she shouldn't be able to bend her arms and legs. She looks like, you know, when kids are playing robots and they put their their limbs in poster tubes or something. Well, maybe that's why she has to run so many guilds, because she can't, like, you know, pick stuff up if it's, if it's close to her. It's like that parable of being in hell, but you have stiff arms or long spoons or whatever. Yeah, that's Gans. Anyway... Uh, this is also where we see more of Bond, her henchman that we mentioned earlier, and I mentioned his elaborate facial hair, but seriously, it's this short, incredibly well-tailored beard. It's almost as elaborate as Seneca Crane's in the Hunger Games movies, which I, rec- I uh, tried to replicate for a costume party once. It went pretty well. Uh, or, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s in the Iron Man movies. Like, Bond may be evil, and he may be working for Kandra, which is a bad plan, but damn, dude's got style. Which we know Kandra appreciates. It's true, she did date Gambit for a while, and uh, say what you will about Gambit, please say what you will about Gambit, but he does have style, of a sort. Yeah, of a sort. I I was gonna say, there's style and there's taste, and this is where we remember that they're two entirely different quantities. Well, eventually, Kandra and Jamil and Bond all wander away because they were just here to gloat, not to fight. And so Storm reunites with Thief Dad, with Ahmed, who is indeed on his deathbed. And John Romita Jr. does such a good job here of conveying Storm's mixed happiness at seeing Ahmed again, but also her sorrow at seeing his state. Like, conveying emotion in art of faces is hard. Not all artists can do it. Conveying that many conflicting, overlapping emotions? Yeah, even more so. And and Ahmed has called Storm there so he can tell her his final wish, which is that Jamil succeed him as leader of of the Urchins and stay the hell away from Kandra. The X-Men suit up and go on the hunt on the streets of Cairo. They're wearing their usual X-Men stealth gear of uniforms in white or blue and yellow or brown and blue and pink, so they just blend right in. There's a lovely scene at the beginning of this when Storm is explaining to Gambit that this is hers to do alone. It's 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 on her. And Jean understands. Jean stayed back and Jean shows up and is like, are you kidding? I'm coming along. Oh, yeah. So they're all on the hunt. And somehow these masters of stealth are found by Jamil's evil urchins. He's already started his own group of evil hedgehog children. And the fight is over in a single two-page spread, but man, what a two-page spread. Storm is on one side of it on one page, blowing a bunch of thieves away with this yellow cloud of dust and lightning, and Gene's on the other side with his giant pink explosion of telekinesis, and they just look so astonishingly badass and powerful. It actually reminds me of the cover to the first Gold Team issue of Uncanny, I think 281, where they're kind of doing the same thing, but given way more room to breathe. To their credit, uh, Jean at least does point out that given that they're three extremely highly trained adults with superpowers facing off against a bunch of ragtag tweens, they should maybe hold back a little. And maybe they do physically. They do literally blow them away, though, like Storm mentions that she carries them away on wind, which just seems so insulting. Uh, It's great. So they take the fight to Kandra, and Storm does what Storm often does and challenges Kandra to a duel. This is how Storm solves problems. If you can't draw, if you can't drama them, stab them. Yeah, except when she dueled Callisto, it was kind of cooler because Callisto is just cooler than Kandra. Also, they're using their powers this time. I mean, that was cooler, but I feel better about Kandra getting punched in the face than I did about Callisto getting punched in the face. 
that's pretty reasonable. And there are seven pages of this fight scene. A storm fights Kandra, Jean just punches out Jamil, and Gambit has a big fight with Bond. And it's really awesome. John Romita just draws such good combat. It's got such good physicality. You can just feel the impact. While this isn't specifically a Gene story, there's something in it that's very, very emblematic of Gene's characterization post-Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix that I really dig, which is Gene Grey 100% done with your bullshit. Yeah. Um, Gene has come back from the future basically being like, yeah, um, look, I'm really good at this. I am generally going to be the most powerful person in the room. I... Why the fuck should I faint and worry when I can just knock everyone out telepathically and go about my business or, you know, whatever. Like, Jean has her shit together. She's much, much more confident in her abilities and she's much more, not exactly casual, but her competence is much more casual. Yeah, I really appreciate that about her. Uh, That, I think, was something that got accentuated in X-Men Red uh, pretty well also. One of the reasons I like that series so much. Yeah, I can see that. So the fight ends with our heroes victorious. Uh, Karima even shows up to help out because Kandra, it turns out, is just playing possum. And so as Kandra builds up a bunch of energy to blow everyone away, Karima just throws a dagger through Kandra's hand. So that's kind of awesome. She can bullshit really well, and she can throw knives really well. Two important hedgehog skills. Yeah, which, as we know, are the skills necessary for for running any any given group or team as as storm has taught us over the years and um if 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 you can figure out where this is going good on you jamil of course says fuck this i'm going off with kandra i'm going to be rich and famous and murdery and you know i can't fully blame him because he explains why to storm as he leaves which is basically i am sick of living this life of lowly crime and poverty, like, maybe it's honorable, but it super, super sucks. I want to go with the person who can help me live up to my potential. And on the one hand, Kandra's terrible. On the other hand, you know, I, I can't say I don't get it at least a little bit. He's had a hard life already. This is more appealing. Well, and as he points out, it's not like Storm just stuck around. Yeah, and it's not like Jamil can just go off to become a goddess and then join a superhero team. It's the Marvel Universe, though. I mean, he he could. There is that. But Ahmed feels okay about this when Storm reports what happened. Yeah, he points out that when when Storm was a kid, he'd sent her off after some trinket, and she'd almost always come back with something inestimably more valuable. And she's basically done that again. Um, You know, she didn't bring back Jamila, but she did bring back... Karima, who's got her heart in the right place and is also very, very good with knives. And so this is the kid who's going to be taking over um, the, I keep on thinking of it as the Thieves Guild. It's not, it's the Urchins. I'm so excited about this, Jay. Do you know why? Why? Because if Karima's the leader of the street urchins, that means she, that means that she can call a meeting together and she can give urchin generals warnings. Eh? Eh? Jay, judgmental, eyes closed, shaking of your head does not come through in an audio medium. Oh, I think the listeners know. (laughs) So, Kariba and Jamil will actually be back, and not even too far in the future. They're going to be back in X-Men Volume 2, number 60, where we find out, oh boy, where we find out that Jamil, this whole time, has just been a psychic projection of Kariba, as one might have anticipated? I think I read a horror novel about that once. 
Yeah, well, maybe. Uh, anyway, X-Men Unlimited number seven? I really like this issue a lot, and part of that is that John Romita Jr. is just kicking all kinds of ass with this. Part of it, though, is that it's fun. Yeah, it's fun and it's high stakes. And so I I really like Thief, like the, the, the being an awesome street thief era of Storm's Life is one of those eras that I wish they that they would do more with. Like, I want YA novels set during this. And it's always nice to see it not only revisited, but revisited well and in ways that don't involve the Shadow King. Yeah, totally agreed. Also, speaking of novels, I just realized that, and this is I, this is the last week I'm going to do it, I promise, um, because this when this episode comes out, Thor Metal Gods will be officially out. In case you have missed my, my extremely lackadaisical shilling for the last month or so, I co-wrote a Thor novel. It's coming out. It's an, um, an audio serial, not, not like an audio drama serial, but a serialized audio novel from Serial Box. You can also get it in, in, you know, words on a screen. It's out now. It's called Thor Metal Gods. It's a lot of fun. Lila Cheney's in it. I remembered today that that we were going to make a soundtrack and then we forgot, but the only song that we actually remembered to put on it was the Faster Pussycat cover of You're So Vain. So, you know, make of that what you will. Oh, I will. So excited for that. Now, Thor aside, you listeners have questions. And those questions, in fact, are about X-Men, so... An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, could Logan get a tattoo? Get, yes. Keep... Probably not, although there's probably some kind of adamantium-infused hand-wavy tattoo ink. Plus, there's the thing about how, you know, Logan's hair recovers to a certain point. So it's possible that if the tattoo were enough part of Logan's self-image, he'd, he'd regenerate it. Now, his son, Dokken, who also has a healing, healing factor, does have a tattoo, which, in fact, grew back when his arm grew back after being cut off, not once but twice. So no one's sure quite what's going on there. This has not actually been explained in canon. Wait, Doc can get his arm cut off twice? What is he, a Star Wars character? Pretty much. Um, now, I always, I always thought this would be a great thing to use in a comic, like as, as, as a brief gag where, where Logan is, is wooing a girl and gets a tattoo of her name to impress her, you know, knowing full well that it's going to be gone within a couple of days. <laughs> I love it. I'm kind of reminded of a comic I will bring up at every opportunity, the James Robinson 90s run of Starman. At one point, Jack Knight, our main character, who has a ton of tattoos, his body gets sort of regenerated. It's complicated. But he wakes up with no tattoos at all and just feels like he's not himself anymore. And I thought that was a really good story beat. I especially love that the tattoos he misses are canonically kind of shitty. Like, there's definitely one of them that he got that was supposed to be a phoenix and looks like a chicken. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure that's happened a few times with some artists in the Marvel Universe, so, you know. But in general, that's that's a good, yeah, that's a good Jack Knight feature. Like, that his shitty tattoos are part of his characterization, not just that they're meaningful, but that they're, you know, part of him being kind of shitty on the way to being good. Yeah. Now, another anonymous listener asks on Tumblr um, whether there are any non-mutants whose reactions to the current X status quo we'd like to see. Oh, man. Okay, so we're not going to do major spoilers for House of X and Powers of Ten, but I think it's okay to talk about the central premise of House of X, which is that the mutants are now on their own sort of isolated nation, islands, semi-dimension, whatever, of Krakoa. They're more separate from humanity than they've ever been, even in things like the Utopia era. 
So as far as humans who I'd like to see react to that, there are so many options. And I feel like as soon as we stop recording this, I'm going to think of 10 more. So listeners, please let us know who you think would be good choices. But the folks that jump out for me, I want to hear what Trish Tilby thinks. Not only has she spent a great deal of time in the world of various X characters, but she spent a great deal of time communicating about that world to the human population as a news anchor. I think that could be really cool. Similarly, from X Factor, Charlotte Jones. She saw the O5X Men at their most human, and that included one of the least human-looking ones, Archangel. I feel like she would be probably very disappointed, and I don't know if it would be more sad or angry disappointment, but either way, that could be a killer scene. I've decided to keep my goals achievable here, and part of making them achievable means requiring as little in the way of Marvel approval as possible, so I'm going to say Neil Conan, because we could just ask him. Oh, that's true, and he is a real person who was also an X-Men character. I guess so were we, come to think of it. Huh. Yeah, but we're not part of this universe. Eh, that's true. Uh, Stevie Hunter, I think, would be a great person to hear from. She is a politician that's been allied with mutants in addition to having worked intimately with a number of them as they were training. Ooh, speaking of the X-Factor days, I've got one. Yeah? Ship. That's true. Ship is not a mutant. I almost wonder if Ship would care. Like, I don't know if Ship is really all that invested in the interaction between humans and mutants. Well, Ship has had the experience of being a mutants-only sanctuary in ways very similar to the ways that Krakoa is. And I think, if nothing else, it would be at least a little bit nostalgic. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I'd also like to hear from Carl the Executioner, because Carl's whole deal is that he feels like when mutants mess with humans, humans should be the ones to bring them to justice. And now, very specifically, mutants are doing an XSE kind of thing where they're dealing with uh, enforcing the law for their own people. I think Carl the Executioner would be pretty annoyed and probably pretty ineffectual if he tried to do anything about it, because come on, Carl, seriously. Aw, Miles, you're literally the only person in the universe who cares what Carl the Executioner thinks. Yeah, but I am being kind of a jerk to him, I suppose. Sorry, Carl. Kind of. And last but not least, I mean, okay, we've all been thinking it. What the hell does Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau think about this whole thing? Because whatever it is, I feel like the X-Men should take it under serious consideration. I feel pretty firm saying that Lee Forrester is casually curious but doesn't really give a fuck probably true now we are a fully listener supported podcast and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts let's hear from the angry claremontian narrator you thought it was too good to be true hisham zubi kate post alive well and apparently devoid of the devious machinations that had previously corrupted so much you had held dear how optimistic you were And how naive. If only you had known then what you know now. That when something seems too good to be true, pretty much always is. And the mic now, of course, goes to everyone's favorite never-nude were-pterosaur, Sauron. Ah, fresh summer's blood. I mean, energy, because I'm not a vampire at all, in, in case anyone from the comics code is listening. I remember my first summer space transformation into my current Terra perfection. My first act was to name myself Sauron, for I knew my evil would be as great as that of the big fiery eyeball on a tower, or whatever Sauron actually is. It's been a while since I read those books. 
Now that you have been transformed into a glorious were Parasaurolophus, Ryan Fryer, you too must have an appropriately villainous appellation. And so Sauron dubs thee... Genuinely interesting listicle that nonetheless has every item on its own webpage and scrolls back to the top again when you click to go to the next one! Begin your reign of Dino Terror! Annie Shapira, welcome to your wicked new life as a fearsome humanoid Cryolophosaurus! But your strangely attractive skull plates are not enough to strike terror into the very souls of your victims. Instead, Forever shall you be known as Jerk who designed cold medicine capsule packaging to be almost impossible to open! Destroy! Destroy those that flee in terror from your dino might! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who may or may not be a were-dinosaur. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, explainthexmen.com, and The Savage Land, probably. They have all sorts of stuff in there. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and dinosaurs that will bite you, causing you to transform much later in life. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next dinosaur, I mean, next episode, it's a two-for-one of legacy teams. As the X-Folks face off against the MLF and the Hellfire Club. Neither of which, tragically, includes dinosaurs. That we know of. (laughs) 